I read a book and I've referenced it before. It was a bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list. It was called Blink. And it's a book written by a sociologist, psychologist, and author named Malcolm Gladwell. He's a secular writer and secular thinker, but he has some very interesting insights where he does sort of lab studies on people and runs tests to see how much you can learn about a person in a first impression. And that's the blink effect. It's what you can learn in the blink of an eye from a person. And that's what the book is all about. He references one test where he was analyzing this new trend. And it really is sort of this societal trend where people are dating in what's called three-minute dating. And it's where you carousel around and meet a different person in three minutes where you're kind of moving around a table to different partners. And in three minutes, you're trying to ascertain, am I compatible with that person? That test led to another test that he references in the book where he talks about married couples who were taped, pre-taped three years prior, and in three minutes or one minute or 30 seconds, Malcolm Gladwell is watching this couple interact, one couple after the other. And after 30 seconds, he was able to predict with pretty great accuracy whether or not that couple, that married couple, was going to make it, whether or not they were going to last. And his assessment boiled down to this. If he saw in their interaction any hint of one acting superior over the other, it wasn't going to last. If in, in 30 seconds one spouse was disparaging the other one, that is a seed of self-destruction. And I think he was right. I think that that is a very, very difficult sin to overcome. But in the gospel, in Christ, we can overcome those kinds of things in our marriages where we understand that we need to be at peace with each other. And in our passage this morning, in the teaching that Jesus lays out for us, he is teaching that to act superior over someone is actually to, on a heart level, murder that person. Whether you're in a marriage context or any relationship, when you um, pull a superiority complex over someone else, that's death to the relationship. That's really breaking the law where Jesus says, quoting the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. He's saying don't murder people from your heart. Let me read this passage now in that context. Verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you were offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. It's a very hard-hitting text and very applicable to our Christian lives. These words from Jesus transcend time and they should be something that we are open to 
for our own lives. And so if you're taking notes, Jesus is warning against three levels of murder that happens in the heart. Three levels of murder that happens in the heart. The first level is found in verse 22, and that is being angry with someone. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now this section on anger, let me just bring it helicopter up for a second, is one of six illustrations that Jesus is using to show how we live out the law of God as a New Testament Christian. We're not under the Old Testament Israel system, the old covenant Israel system where we're obeying the law as part of our civil obedience and part of our, um, you know, sort of societal obedience. But we are to take the law of God and see that Jesus fulfilled it and now is applying it to our lives. Remember, Jesus said in verse 17, don't think I came to abolish the law. I didn't come to throw it away. I came to fulfill it. In other words, all of the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, was all pointing directly to me. I'm the fulfillment of it. That's what Jesus was saying. It was like a fulfilled prophecy where Jesus said everything that the law was explaining or symbolizing or directly or indirectly pointing to was me. And so Jesus is the person that we should listen to for how to live out the law of God. Because he's the fulfillment of it. He's the perfect teacher of the law. He obeyed it perfectly, but he fulfills it perfectly because it was all foreshadowing him. It's as if the curtain is drawn and now there's Jesus, the point of the law. And Jesus is confronting the Pharisees in his teaching by saying, look, the Pharisees wanted to bind you up with legalism. They wanted to use the law and create heavy burdens on people's backs By saying, look, not only do you obey the law, but you need to obey it more and more, more precisely. And they would write books that would that they would hold up as authority along with the law of God, authoritative that you were supposed to obey as well. And they would they would sort of bind people's consciences that way. And Jesus says, instead of that being more and more obedience, that's actually relaxing the law of God. That's making the law superficial as if, hey, I haven't killed somebody, for instance. I haven't taken somebody's life and murdered them, and so I'm good. That's that's what the Pharisees would say, and they're relaxing the law by doing that. Jesus is saying, well, wait a minute. The law needs to go not more and more in your life. It needs to go deeper and deeper in your life. You need to obey the law from the heart. So even if you're not carrying out murder with your hands, hey, hey, wait, Let's look at what are you doing in your heart towards someone. That's how Jesus is applying the law of God to the heart. This is what 1 Corinthians 9 calls the law of Christ. This is obeying the law as Jesus intends it to be obeyed and as he explains it. It's doing it deeper and deeper. He says here in verse 21, You shall not murder. He's quoting the Old Testament, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. This is commandment number six. The first four commandments were about God. The last six commandments were about how you relate to man. And this is one of those commandments. And he's saying, you shall not murder. Whoever murders, verse 21, will be liable to judgment. Now, that's true 
what Jesus says, but I think Jesus is also confronting the Pharisees and saying, you know what, you've heard it said that if you murder, you, you know, you heard, you've probably heard the Pharisees talk about the law in this way, and they're quoting the rabbis of old, those of old, verse 21. You know, there's this discussion about the law of God that if you murder, you'll end up in court. You'll be liable for judgment. That's not even accurate exactly, because what happens if you murder somebody under the Old Testament system? You're executed, right? You're executed. Genesis 9-6 is the spiritual law that God put in place, where he says, whoever sheds the blood of men, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man, what? In his own image. So if someone destroys someone who's in the image of God by murdering them, then they need to be executed. That's Genesis 9-6. Numbers 35 echoes that. If, if a couple of witnesses can confirm that murder took place, then you should be executed because it's destroying the image of God. But Jesus here, he's saying, look, you've heard it was put that way. Almost like, look, if you do this, then you'll end up in court. But verse 22 shows that Jesus is taking it to the heart. He's saying, you've heard it was taught that way, but I say to you, everyone who is angry, stop right there. He's saying, you've heard it put more in a legal sense that just don't murder people because you'll go to court or bad things will happen to you. And Jesus is saying, but I say to you, if you are angry towards somebody, then that's the deeper problem. That's the deeper issue. By the way, just another sort of um, word that I need to, to express to you to sort of set the table. This is one of six illustrations of how to obey the law. And for every illustration, whether it's anger, adultery, lust, or breaking oaths, or retaliation, or, or uh, you know, loving your enemies, all of these illustrations begin with Jesus saying, you've heard it was put this way, but I say to you, it's this way. Jesus in no way is undoing the law of God by saying that. I just want to lay that as a foundation. There is continuity and Jesus is affirming the law of God from the Old Testament. And there's continuity from what it meant then to what it means when Jesus is teaching it. He's not undoing the law. What he's undoing is Pharisaism. You've heard the Pharisees teach it this way, but I'm teaching it this way on a deeper level, on a heart level. The law was always meant to be obeyed devotionally. That's my point. Even in the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, it's always called the law of love. Deuteronomy 6 talks about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and obeying the law of God. Romans 13 calls the Ten Commandments, as it's reaffirmed in the New Testament, as the law of love. And so Jesus, again, is saying obey on the heart level. That's what he's doing. Let me give a few ideas, a few thoughts about just thou shalt not kill for a second. In no way is the Bible saying, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, that we should not take the life of another person. Um, The Bible affirms war. It affirms judgment. Jesus, when he comes, he's going to, comes again, he's going to destroy his enemy with a two-edged sword. God established ruling authorities to execute judgment. Romans chapter 13, 1 through 4 talks about how God set up the institution of law to bring a sword of judgment against people who were disobedient. People sometimes will argue that 
that to have the death penalty in place cheapens the preciousness of human life. But as John Stott puts it, he says, you know, people who argue it that way, perhaps they're not thinking about the preciousness of human life that was taken by the murderer. So it's important to understand what the Bible is teaching there regarding um, this kind of judgment. The idea is, as the ESV puts it, you should not murder. You should not take a human life unjustly in the wrong way. On the other hand, the Bible also teaches that we are to value people because they were made in the image of God. They're made in the image of God. You say, well, I do that. Well, do you? Let me just challenge you. If, if you find somebody who has, you know, on the news, who's, who's abused a child, perhaps killed their children or done something horrible, do you look at that person and do you say in your heart, that person is scum, That person is the scum of the earth, and you just allow your heart to burn against that person. Well, I would just say let's be cautious. Let's be cautious because even though someone might deserve to be executed, they are still someone who was made in the image of God. And we are called, because Christianity is radical, to love the sinner and hate their sin at the same time. Unique challenges. What about on a lesser level? Someone who just does you wrong and you say, man, that person is the scum of the earth. (laughs) Right? In your heart. Whether you vocalize it or you're just thinking it in your heart, that person did me wrong and I am going to burn against them. Instead, we need to say, look, even though that person's hurt me or is hurting me, God made that person in the image of himself. And so we're called to love people, even people that struggle with us or we struggle with as well. Jesus is bringing a much deeper level to the law of God here. He's saying that this is not just to be obeyed in the name of civil obedience. This is to be obeyed at the heart level. At the heart level, deeper and deeper. 1 John Chapter 3, verse 15 echoes Jesus' teaching in a hard-hitting way. John said, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The point? If you hate somebody in an ongoing way where you're unwilling to repent of it and you just burn and burn and burn as a life pattern... You shouldn't assume that you have eternal life at the same time. That's what he's saying. Don't assume you're a believer if you're someone who, as a pattern of your life, just hates people. It's not what the Spirit of God lets us do. I like the way J.C. Ryle, this sort of Puritan preacher from the UK, put it. He said, let us mark well, we may be perfectly innocent of taking life away and yet be guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. How do you do that? Well, you can kill other people innocently, protecting your family or, or working in the armed services or, or as a policeman or other scenarios that we could come up with. But we're not allowed to hate people. That would be disobeying this command. Killing and hating is not the same thing. Now, burning in anger can lead to violent killing, and that would be sin as well. But that's not what Jesus is pointing out. He's pointing out the fact that to obey the law on the heart level is the issue. 
Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. This is the first level of murdering with your heart. If you hate, if you're angry, this is murdering. And this is, uh, this is God's court. You know, you're liable to this judgment. This judgment is God's court. Because God is the only one who can see your heart. He knows if you are angry towards someone right now. He knows. He sees that. And even if, as a believer, you have a pattern of being angry with someone, you don't want to be in this court. You don't want to have God's heavy, chastening hand in your life. Do you ever ask yourself the question, why is my prayer life so dry right now? Why am I not sort of having this free-flowing communion with the Lord? Well, if you're hating people and you're unwilling to repent of that, there's your answer. It's a serious thing to have anger towards somebody. It'll dry you up spiritually. It'll sap your life right out of your spiritual life. This is the first level. It doesn't matter if you don't vocalize this kind of hate, if you're not telling other people about this hate. It's there nevertheless, and God sees it. I was looking at 1 Kings chapter 8 where Solomon dedicated the temple. They had this beautiful, majestic temple that represented God's presence on the nation of Israel. And Solomon wanted to make it clear that no temple could house God ultimately. The heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain you, Solomon was praying. But then he said, here in heaven, here in heaven, forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know. He knows your heart. He hears everything that's going on inside of you. First Chronicles 28.9 represents this as well. The Lord searches all hearts, understands every plan and thought. He knows everything. Proverbs chapter 6 calls this kind of murder, actually physical murder that comes from a heart that is sinning. In the list of the six abominations or the seven deadly sins, Proverbs says that God hates hands that shed innocent blood. Let me say this as well. Jesus is not condemning righteous anger. Is there ever any sense in which the Christian should be indignant? Well, Jesus was indignant. He was indignant against people who were, you know, buying and selling things in the church for, you know, unlawful profits. And they were probably gambling and they were, they were messing up the atmosphere of the house of God. And, and Jesus went in there for the sake of his father and overturned the tables and whipped people and kicked them out. That was righteous anger. But was Jesus doing that on his behalf or the Father's behalf? I say he was doing it on the Father's behalf. Whenever, for instance, we get angry and our ego is involved and we make it about us and then we say that's righteous indignation, you know what that is? That's hypocrisy. That's where we're lying to ourselves. Paul said in Ephesians 4, be angry and sin not. Yeah, you can be indignant For the name of God, but you need to guard your heart at the same time. And he says, don't let let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it be a problem with you if you're upset for the sake of God's glory. For instance, when Jesus was mocked and spat upon, his beard was ripped out, he was saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's where Jesus could have made it personal. He could have made it about him. 
And instead, he was always promoting the glory of God, whether he was angry um, in righteous indignation or whether he was merciful to people. He was thinking about God. And when we get angry, it's so easy to dupe ourselves and say, you know what? I'm angry, but I'm angry in the name of God. Let's just slap a Bible verse on that anger. You know, (laughs) for instance, that person did me wrong. I can point out in scripture where that person is sinning against me. Right. And you just say, wow, I'm I'm I've got a green light to just be mad and, you know, spit and run around the room and do all that stuff. I mean, that's sin. That's what God is saying we cannot do on a heart level. We can't burn with anger against people. And we can't call it righteous indignation and slap Bible verses all over and say, if that person would just obey, then things would be okay. Well, no. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and what? Patience. It should be long-fused, and we should be, by the power of the Holy Spirit, patiently observing people and helping people along and not taking things personally. And getting our ego involved. All right, the first level of murdering people with your heart is to burn with anger against them. The second level is found again in verse 22, and that is insulting someone. Insulting someone. It says, Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. The word insult there is. Raka, you've probably seen translations where it says, whoever says someone is Raka is liable to the council. I used to, as a a boy growing up with my older brother, think to myself, well, whatever I do, no matter how mad I get, no matter what I say to my brother, I don't want to call him Raka because that'll get me in big trouble with God. And I surely better not call him a fool because I don't want to go to hell. Right? You know what that is? That's Phariseeism. That's legalism. That's me thinking that, you know, I can obey this rule without thinking about my heart. Because the word insult or raka is to call someone a blockhead or to call someone worthless, worthless, or an empty head. And you know what? As a kid, I disobeyed the teachings of Christ all the time. And I'm sure some of you children sitting there can think about when you're calling your sibling an empty head or a blockhead, or you're saying, you know what, you're worthless. You're worthless. Or on an adult level, when we say to somebody, whether it's with a direct statement or an indirect statement, you know what, you're worthless. Whatever you say, however you get there with somebody else, you're basically conveying the message, you don't work, you're not worth anything to me. Or even worse, it's when you go to somebody else and you say, you know what, that person over there, that person is worthless. That's what God is condemning here. And he's saying, you're liable to the council. Again, this lands you in God's court. God does not like this. He's not pleased with this. And it breaks down our fellowship with him. If we'd be willing to do this. This is where we're burning with someone, burning against somebody on one level. And all of a sudden, it ramps up where out of the heart, out of the mouth, proceed the things of the heart, and our burning turns into words against someone, where we're willing to to say awful things against them or to them, saying they're worthless. Saying, you know what? You were made in the image of God, but I don't care. You're worthless. It's just completely ignoring the fact that people are made in God's image. By the way, every level that we let our heart go, what we're doing is we're pushing someone down and we're raising ourselves up. You ever thought of that? 
I'm angry with that person, so I'm pushing them down. And now I'm willing to insult that person, and I'm pushing that person down, and I'm raising myself up. And then finally, the third level where we actually condemn someone is where we're pushing that person down and we're raising ourselves to the level of God and we're saying, you are a fool, as if you're speaking for God. James 3.9 puts it this way. It says, with our tongue, we bless our Father and with it, we curse people who are made in God's likeness. We curse them. We're willing to curse people. We're willing to say something like you're worthless. And it's completely ignoring that they were made in the likeness of God. Every time that you are tempted to say something evil towards someone and to curse them, you know what you need to think? I need to think, you know what? God made that person. I may have an issue with that person, but God made that person. That person might have an issue with me, but God made that person. And so that needs to stem the tide against my own heart. Because you see that this is a creature that God has made. And consider that first. Well, we, we go and we murder with our hearts by hating people, by being angry with people. And then secondly, by insulting people. And then thirdly, by condemning someone. By condemning someone. You see this at the end of verse 22. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Condemning someone. This is the word moron. Now you say, well, how bad is that, calling someone a moron? Actually, this is deeper than just calling someone a name. We've moved from burning anger to name calling to now condemnation. And it's the idea that as we're pushing someone down, we're raising ourselves up. It's deeper than an insult. It's where we assassinate someone's character and condemn them. Basically saying, you know what? You deserve to go to hell. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's what it means to break commandment number six. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's calling someone that in the name of God. It's saying you're worthless and you're condemned. You are not only worthless, you know what you are? You're hopeless. You're hopeless. 1 Timothy 5.8, this is what Paul said of people who would not take care of their families. They're people who are worse than an infidel. It's being liable to the hell of fire at the end of verse 22. The hell of fire here is the word Gehenna. It was uh, a reference to the trash heap that was an ongoing burning dump that was outside of Jerusalem. And it was the place where King Ahaz in the Old Testament burned his sons. Worshipping Moloch, he would bring his sons to this trash heap and burn them. That's what Jesus is referencing. And he's saying, if your heart is unrepentant, and if you are willing to condemn someone at this level, you might be headed to this trash heap, which is called hell. It's a severe warning, and it's a call to monitor your heart. No believer will stay in this state of sin. No believer will do it. The Spirit of God will not let someone stay in a position in their heart where they're saying that person is a fool. 
He won't do it. But an unbeliever will just ignore this and say, look, who are you to tell me I can't condemn somebody? I can burn against them. They did me wrong. I can do that. I can keep doing that and not repent of that. I can call that person an idiot. I can say they're worthless. No big deal. And ultimately, I can say, you know what? You're hopeless. I absolutely have that right to do that. And Jesus is saying, look, as a believer, you don't do that. Because unbelievers do that and they're headed to hell. They're liable to the hell of fire. But believers will ultimately, by the Spirit of God, soften up. You know, under this teaching, aren't we all condemned at some level? Perhaps we could say, you know what, I've never killed someone, so I'm not that bad. But you know what? Under this teaching, when Jesus takes it on a heart level, on a deeper level, we've all killed. We've all murdered. We all need grace. We all need the gospel. Jesus' teaching throws us on the gospel. We're thrust upon the need for the gospel. Because we've all done it. And Jesus here is not saying, you're a fool. He's saying, don't be a fool. Don't do it. He's not condemning. He's trying to rescue with these words. He is. It forces us to cry out for God's grace. And the verses that follow are basically two illustrations of how urgent this teaching really is. Because Jesus is trying to open up a couple scenarios to show the hearers that if you don't listen to his counsel, bad things will happen to you. Look at verse 23. He says, so if you if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You know, in an Old Testament sense, this would be a very dramatic thing to do where you are in the process of offering your gift in the name of God, and all of a sudden you do an about face in that moment and change the, change the plan of the day because you begin to see that I need to reconcile something in my life first. Here's a way uh, Kent Hughes described this scenario in an Old Testament sense. He says, the worshiper, and I put it up on the screen, the worshiper has entered the great temple of Herod with his sacrifice and has passed through the concentric the concentric courts, the court of the Gentiles, the court of women, the court of men. Beyond him lies the court of the priests, into which only priests could pass. The worshiper is standing at the threshold of the court. His hands are on the sacrifice, and suddenly he remembers that he has wronged his brother, so he turns and retreats through the great courts. He must first make things right with his brother. You know what Jesus is doing with this picture? He's saying, look, don't try to outweigh your bad with your supposed good. Don't be a religious hypocrite where you have this twinge of guilt in your heart that you need to get something right with somebody else. And you try to cover it with religious duties or practices. I was trying to think about what this would look like 
in our church on a Sunday morning where you're sitting here and you're worshiping and you're offering sacrifices of praise and all of a sudden you go, oh, I need to get something right with somebody else. So you just leave. Well, I'm not trying to empty the place. I mean, I guess you could text it to somebody right now if you needed to. But really, really what he's talking about, he's talking on the level of the heart again. And he's saying that, listen, you don't want to try to ramp up your spiritual duties in service, like serving in the church or serving and meeting people's needs and ignore the greater thing that you need to do, which is to seek harmony within the body of Christ, within the church. I also want to show you something from verse 22 to verse 23. Did you notice how Jesus turned the tables? In verses 21 and 22, he's saying, look, you murder in your heart if you're angry, if you're calling somebody, you know, bad names, and if you're condemning somebody. But then in verse 23, he says, if you're offering your gift and you remember that your brother has something against you, you go to him. He, he ramps things up, Jesus does, on a hard level. He, he makes it deeper and deeper by saying, look, the law of God isn't just what you're not supposed to do. The law of God here means proactively that you're supposed to seek people who have something against you. I preached this first hour and someone said, look, I was safe in your sermon all the way up to that point to where Jesus turned the table. I was safe because I could, I could guard my own heart and obey this privately. But now, now that the teaching is really saying that anyone that you know that has something against you, you've got to go to them. Well, that's tougher to live out. But you know what? The gospel was big enough to save you from hell. And the gospel is big enough to save your relationships. Or at least give you the power and strength to go there and try. That's how big the gospel is for you. That's how big the power of God is for us. We know that we've been saved and our whole lives have been turned around. And so how much further of a stretch is it for us to think that God could also mend relationships? Jesus is saying we need to be urgent about this. And we dare not try to ensconce our issues with religious hypocrisy. We don't want to do that. Don't try to outserve your problem. <laughs> Serve Jesus by going to people and making things right. All right, the second illustration. The second illustration is dealing with the secular community. The secular community. The first illustration is dealing with the church. Now this is dealing with everybody else. And this begins in verse 5, 25. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. It's quite a name. It's somebody accusing you, saying things about you. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Stop there. The scenario is one where you have a conflict with someone else and that person is mad at you. That doesn't say anything about whether or not you're angry with that person, but that person is angry with you and you're saying, you know what, I know that I'm in the right. I know that the authorities are going to take care of this and so let's bring it all the way to court. I'm willing to go there. And so you're, you're going up the courtroom steps 
And Jesus is saying, wait a minute, you need to come to your senses. Before you throw yourself at the mercy of the court system, you need to see how insidious and how powerful anger really is. Not just anger that will destroy your own heart, but the anger that could destroy you from someone else's heart. And you need to catch yourself up short and say, you know what? I'm going to settle this thing outside of court. Because he's saying, if you don't settle things outside of court, things could go really bad for you. Where all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're in jail and you didn't do anything wrong in the first place. That's how urgent this message is. He's saying, run from these situations like the plague. Now, am I saying you should never go to court? No. Of course, we have the court system for our benefit, and there are opportunities where judges and lawyers can really help us out, and the Lord has designed that institution um, for our good. However, when anger is involved... When there's personal ego that's involved in these situations, Jesus is saying, be very, very careful and be willing to settle outside of court. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Because the tables can turn on you and you could be in prison. What kind of prison? Well, some people believe this is the debtor's prison. Verse 26. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. It's the idea that you get thrown into the the clink. Why? You're thrown in because the table's turned on you. And until you can pay your way out, you can't get out. Well, how are you going to earn money in jail? You can't do it. And so you're stuck in jail for life. A lot of people believe that's a picture of hell where if, you know, your heart is unrepentant and you're unwilling to repent of this kind of anger, insulting and condemning, then you could end up in hell. And that's just another picture of that. I think that... Really, the picture is this. Debtor's prison also played out where people would be put into prison until they could pay their way out. And that would put the onus on their families and their friend, their friends to bail them out. And so it was a very shameful thing to be put into debtor's prison because you're in there and all of a sudden your family and friends need to bail you out. And so it's extreme shame, and Jesus is saying, look, you need to avoid the extreme shame of nursing a conflict. Don't let a conflict continue on and ramp up and get worse and worse and worse, where all of a sudden you're in front of the judge, and the judge is turning the tables on you and not seeing your side and believing the accuser against you, and all of a sudden your life is getting worse and worse and worse and more and more shameful. Deal with it. Nip it in the bud. Be willing to bury the hatchet and go there. That's what Jesus is teaching. All right, here's a few points of application. Number one, and I I say a few points. There's a lot of points here. And it's because this is a very, very serious sin. And I know that for many of you, this is something that's real time in your life and in your heart. Number one. We should be very sobered by the sin of anger. That's what Jesus is doing in this passage. Saying it very soberingly. Anger disqualifies a person from spiritual leadership. Now we know, 1 Timothy 3, that you can't be an angry man and be a pastor or an elder. But you know what? That also trickles down to all of your opportunities in the body of Christ. If you're an angry person, an unrepentant, angry person, it will undercut your ministry opportunities in the body, in serving. Number two, anger destroys relationships. 
It does. It destroys relationships with your spouse, with your children, with your friends, and your, in your work environment, your employer, or your employees. It's destructive. It's arsenic to relationships. It's cancer. It's divisive. It hurts your kids. It'll hurt your children. Your children will sense it on you or they'll see it in the home. And it will also shape your children. It's a sin that undoubtedly gets passed down because it makes an imprint and an impression on your children as they observe you in your home. So you want to deal with it. You say, well, look, I've been angry in front of my kids. What do I do? You know what? Be as transparent as you were in the angry moment in a peaceful way and say, you know what, children, I blew it. Please forgive me. That is anger and that is sin. Call it what it is. Call it sin and say, that's the sin of anger. And now let's use that shameful moment to make it a glorious teaching moment and show how the gospel heals relationships. You see? It shapes your children and the anger that shapes your children can be counterbalanced with the gospel that shapes your children. Anger leads to violence. You know, you can find yourself doing things that you thought you would never do if you let anger go. Anger can land you in prison. It can get you the death penalty. Worse yet, anger can lead people to hell. An angry heart is a heart that's not transformed The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. James chapter 1, verse 20. That's why we are supposed to be slow to anger. All right, number two. If you neglect the sin of anger, it will grow, not shrink. I was thinking about that in terms of the first scenario of anger that's found in Genesis chapter 4. Very early on in the storyline of the Bible, you've got Cain who kills Abel. And the reason he killed Abel was because he got angry and would not stop. He would not repent. He became very angry when God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's sacrifice. You know the story. And God confronted Abel and said, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? Then God goes on to warn Cain and says, sin is crouching at the door. It's like a lion ready to pounce on you. Your anger that you're nursing is going to eat you alive, is what God was saying to Cain. Its desire is for you, and he says, look, unless you rule over it, it will destroy you. And ultimately, Cain was abandoned by, from God and sent away. We don't want to be that way. How do we diagnose ourselves as to whether or not we're angry? Here's a little test. Diagnose your heart by asking yourself, what am I willing to think about someone? It's a very important question because that's what's going on in your heart. And that's what God knows that maybe you've not ever expressed to anyone else. But you should think to yourself, okay, I'm a Christian. God has transformed my heart. But what am I still willing to think about somebody else? Even someone that's made in the image of God. What am I willing to say to someone else? How low will I go? How much am I willing to speak against someone else? 
Thirdly, am I assassinating someone's character even right now? Sin. Letter B, do I wish that someone was dead? Only you can know this. That's what Jesus is after. Thou shalt not kill. You're murdering someone if you wish that someone was dead. Number three, dignify people made in the image of God. People you struggle with. This is hard. When you struggle with someone, no matter how sinful they are, when you have an ongoing struggle with them, you need to think in terms of the fact that God made them in the image of God. We've talked about that. And it's even harder when people struggle with you and you know they're struggling with you. You've got to think, okay, that person that is a struggler with me was made in the image of God. And so I need to dignify that. It's a great place to start with people in your heart when you want to transform your perspective and begin to love them. It's very important. Number four, and this is the gospel-centered point, our last point, reconcile quickly. Reconcile with people quickly. Why? Well, because we've got the gospel. Why, why can we leave our gift at the altar? Why can we avoid being a religious hypocrite? Why, why do we settle outside of court? Because we've got the gospel. Uh, the gospel is big enough. It's, it's filled with hope to help solve our anger issue. And it's also, we should lean on the gospel for hope to reconcile with others. The gospel was big enough to save you, so it's big enough to create reconciliation in your home, at your workplace, with your family, with your extended family, with your relationships, the gospel's big enough. And it's, it is made for reconciliation. That's what it's there for. That's Jesus' gift to us. That's why he taught this lesson, to bring us to the point where we would lean upon the gospel for resolution. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the grace of the gospel. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us your truth and you've given us your truth as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You're leading us along as a church.